0: One of the other structured questions I did ask is, you know, after being in Canada for, you know, 30, 40 years at this point, how do you identify yourself? Very fascinating thing that came out of that was everyone described themselves as Canadian. Um, And a lot of that had to do with both time. So a lot of them said, we've spent so much time in Canada, so it's natural that we feel this attachment. And then many of them expressed what they believe to be Canadian values. So they said, you know, we believe in the values of Canada which they sort of described as, you know, democracy, freedom of speech. Um, a lot of them said it's a land of opportunity. So, you know, if you work hard, you can achieve really good things. Very tolerant of both our views and us as a community.
1: Welcome to another episode of Expulsion at 50. My name is Dolla Vassani. This podcast series has been created to commemorate the 50 year anniversary of the expulsion of Asians from Uganda. In February 2021, I spoke to Shazan Muhammadi from his home in Ottawa, Canada. Shazan has written a PhD on the resettlement, integration and identities of Ugandan Asian refugees in Canada. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation.
0: My whole interest in this project started with my mom. So my mom, her two younger brothers, and my grandmother came to Canada from Uganda in the 1970s. So they were part of the refugee movement. Uh, They came in October of 1972. She went directly to Ottawa. So she flew into Montreal. So most refugees came into a military base that was just outside of Montreal. They'd spend about a day or two to rest I um, often get some winter clothing and then they'd send them out to the next destination. So they'd send them to either you know Edmonton, Toronto, Vancouver. Um, if they had family, they would try and send you to a city where you had some family. Uh, if not, they would try and match you with the skill set. So they would say, oh, you might be a mechanic by trade. That's much more in demand in you know the prairie provinces. So head that way. Um, oh, you're in banking, maybe you want to go this way. Um, so my mom ended up in Ottawa her first day there, she was offered an interview with CIBC, so with the bank. And she had gone for the interview and a manpower counselor. So that was our immigration department at the time was called manpower. Um, And so they went with my mom. So they were quite close to the office. It was maybe four or five blocks. And they went together to the appointment. My mom did well. They offered her the job on the spot. They said, when can you start? She said, I'm happy to start tomorrow. Um, And she was probably she was quite young, she was 17 at the time. It gets back to uh, her place the next morning when she's getting ready to go to work and it had snowed overnight. So this was the first major snowfall in the city and my mom was completely lost. So she had no idea how to get back to work and of course just tries her luck. She sews up on her first day at noon. So she's you know three hours, three and a half hours late And she sees the same lady that interviewed her. And my mom just erupts in tears. She's like, I'm so far from home. I'm three hours late to my first day at work. I don't understand how you guys live in a place that's this cold. Like, why would you do this to yourself? She spent, you know, three hours roaming the city in the snow and she just completely broke down. She was like, I'm so lost. I have to look after my two younger brothers and my mom. Like there's so much weight on my shoulders. And so the manager comes down and he says, listen, it's okay let's just spend today getting to know the office. So she goes around, she meets some of the people, they make her some tea, she's feeling much, much better. And at the end of the day, they call her back in. And so they say, listen, you know, we we're going to have, um, we just want to have you meet the rest of the team before you go home. And when she goes into the lunchroom, everyone had bought something for her. Like, anything from like gloves, scarves, hats, they all had heard her story that you know, she had just come and she literally did not have any clothing. Her manager gave her a cash advance to get proper winter boots uh, on her payments. Uh, so it was a really beautiful full experience. Mom always remembers that. Um, even to this day, you know, she smiles telling the story because it was of course a struggle, but she's like, you know, within three days of being in Canada, I already felt like a Canadian.
1: That's a lovely story and experience. The bank was obviously a very warm and nurturing space for your mother.
0: And so when I heard that story from her, like growing up, it was something that really fueled me to get interested. And what made it really fascinating from the Canadian experience is that no one had really done an academic study on the Ugandan Asia. And then it got extra interesting once I started looking at it Academically. So, what had changed was during my master's, I decided to look at just the early roots. So, you know, what was behind this expulsion decree and why did Canada get involved? I was very curious on that front. And it turns out that historically, this period between the 1960s and 1980s was a huge period for Canada's refugee resettlement. Um, and there were some major changes that happened. So, in the late 60s, so in 68, Canada accepts 12,000 Czechoslovakian refugees. And this really felt, fell in line with the Cold War rhetoric. This was an, a chance to you know, show the Westerns leniency and capitalism's embrace of uh, displaced people who are fleeing sort of these communist regimes. And then from there, there's about 100 Tibetans that come to Canada in 1971. And then there's the Ugandan Asians of about 7,000 7, initially and then about another 1,000 through family ratification that come in 72. And that was Canada's first group of non-European and largely non-Christian refugees to ever come. One year later in 73, Canada accepts about 7,000 Chilean refugees. And that was more, again, in the Cold War context because of Salvador Allende and um, Pinochet and sort of the overthrow. Uh, and reception in Canada. And then the next really big one happens in the late 70s. So 78 to 81, Canada accepts almost 80,000 Indo-Chinese refugees um, after the Vietnam War. So Vietnamese, Cambodian, and Laotians. The Ugandan experience, because it was really this test case. It was, you know, can um, non-European, non-Christian communities truly adapt to life in Canada? Um, So you have these huge resettlements happening and Canada doesn't create formal refugee policy until 1976. And so the Ugandan and the Chilean, even the Czechoslovakians, those three groups play a huge role in how they decide how to create formal refugee policy.
1: So Shazan, we know many Ismailis from Uganda ended up in Canada. Is it true that the Aga Khan had a, I quote, special relationship with Pierre Trudeau?
0: A large number of Ismaili Muslims who follow the Aga Khan as a spiritual leader um, have kind of pushed a bit of a a myth. Um, So both the community has kind of done this um, and that historical legacy. The Aga Khan and Trudeau certainly had a personal relationship Um, that's found in the archives, it's found in, in the public. Um, you know, culminating in the Aga Khan being an honorary pallbearer at, you know, Pierre Elliott Trudeau's funeral. The preference that Canada put was if you were stateless. So if you had decided to become a Ugandan citizen, and your citizenship was revoked under Idi Amin's expulsion decree, we would certainly take a look at you. And so Canada's priority was we're going to take the stateless. And so the interesting thing is the Aga Khan comes to Canada at the end of September, so September 28th, and has a meeting with high-level immigration officials to discuss the issue. And everyone agrees, including Diag Khan. He says, listen, we have to do something for the stateless. And the Khan did genuinely believe that the vast majority of Ismailis that were living in Uganda were indeed stateless because when independence happened at 62, as well as in Kenya and Tanzania, his advice to the community was, become citizens where you live. Like That's just the right thing to do. Um, and some had not. So that was the really interesting thing, is some Ismailis did not revoke their British citizenship and become Kenyans, Tanzanians, Ugandans. And so he said, of course, to the immigration officials, we do need to take, you know, these members of my community, we we do need to look for refuge because some of them are gonna face challenges and whatnot and he had agreed to offer assistance so he said you know if you need assistance financially to fly them out of the country if they need settlement funds once they get here in canada i will make sure the community looks after them the challenge was the information that went to the community was if i am an ismaili i'm going to canada
1: so of the seven thousand or so ugandan asians accepted by canada what was the breakdown between the different communities
0: have reliable statistics on all those that were issued visas directly in Kampala and flew to Canada in the initial 90 days. So that's about 4,420 people. And when we break that down, about 60, 62% were Ismaili. And then a large proportion were also uh, going. So going Ugandan Asians, mainly because they had all been working in the civil sector. Sector. So a lot of them were civil servants working for the Ugandan government and had to become citizens in order to keep their jobs in 62. So a large, almost a thousand of them came to Canada.
1: So Shizan, let's talk more about your PhD and the findings of your research.
0: I looked at a one-year master's degree uh, with a specialization in migration ethnic relations still based in history. Uh, and then from there, um, I decided to go directly into the PhD because I was already hooked <laughs> on the Ugandan Asian experience. Uh, and I had a really good supervisor, Dr. Stephanie Bancarth, uh, that really encouraged me to say, you know, you're part of this community. You have a really good attachment. You could do an amazing, you know, oral history project with this and really tell this story for the first time. So I started the PhD in September of 2012. Uh, And then completed in April 2017. It spent largely one summer just traveling the country on a research grant um, and meeting with community members, um, which was unbelievable. So I spent a bit of time. So I did Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, uh, Montreal, Toronto and Ottawa.
1: If I'm not mistaken, you were interested in capturing the lessons or the experiences of the resettlement
0: exactly so i was really curious about the life so basically i would start with you know tell me about your family's background in uganda and then i really left it open-ended so people took me on all kinds of journeys uh which was purposeful Um, i didn't want it to be very structured or scripted uh, because i wanted them to have ownership over what they felt was meaningful to their life history i was quite young at the time so they really viewed this as them telling their own children this story. So like, you know, we'd love to pass this on to the next generation. So interviews were long, um, which I didn't mind at all. Um, They often involved, you know, chai, snacks, bhajia, samosas, all that good stuff, which is great for a starving graduate student. Uh, So I was very, very thankful for that. Yeah, so when we were having chai after the fact or or eating, um, often they had actually planned this so well. So they would have other family members join us. Um, or their spouse would join or their kids would join and we would just start all kinds of new conversations. And so it was more, you you would hear more of the reflections. And so sometimes you would hear things about some of the tragedy that took place or some of the the hard times in that 90 day period. Um, One of the things that is challenged in academia is there's only two or three articles that kind of say it was a mixture of rumors in the community um, versus reality. So they kind of contend that because the community was so tight knit uh, of Ugandan Asians that, you know, if one person was robbed, it felt like the whole community was robbed. And so that was the challenge that they put in that article. But what I found was after actually meeting with all these people, many of them had direct examples themselves. So many of them was like, no, I like our house was raided. Like I remember this or, you know, we were harassed on the way to the airport Um, or airport security definitely went through all of our things.
1: So what are some of the themes that came out from your interviews?
0: For me, the major themes that kind of came out really charts the, their lives in Uganda and then life in Canada. So the first was, um, it was quite honest that many of them explained when they were living in Uganda, it really was part of this colonial structure. So um, they call it this colonial sandwich where you have you know the white British at the top brown middlemen sort of merchants in the middle, and then the Black local Uganda population on the bottom. In the interviews, you would hear stories of um, this rigid hierarchy. You would hear some of them say things like, you know, of course, in Uganda, you know, we lived in our smaller ethnic communities. We would only attend, you know, the local prayer halls for, you know, sporting activities. We went to, you know, Aga Khan schools. And and while Aga Khan schools and many of these institutions were open to the public, they largely had enrollment from specific communities. Um, But then you hear the flip side, then there was incredible philanthropy. So there were so many stories of, you know, anyone that we had working, you know, as house staff, we would send them and their kids to school, like fully paid for. Um, A lot of organizations were started at the time. Um, So there were some huge, huge um, efforts to do philanthropic work. Um, both, you know, in the Goan community and the Ismaili communities and the Sikh community, every single community was doing this. Um, So it was was quite the balance. So you would hear, you know, refugees quite honestly say things like, you know, some of us did take advantage of the situation. Some of us had money in offshore accounts, but others of us didn't. They challenged this notion of a rigid race class hierarchy, um, and they challenged some of the myths about self-segregation, but also inclusivity. And then the other things that really came out of the interviews was sort of life in Canada. One of the, so that was one of the other structured questions I did ask is, you know, after being in Canada for, you know, 30, 40 years at this point, how do you identify yourself? And I left it very open. I said, you can be, you know, Canadian, Ugandan, Ugandan, Canadian, you can be anything or nothing, just go for it. Um, so the very fascinating thing that came out of that was everyone described themselves as Canadian. So they might have been, you know a Christian Canadian. They might have been a going Canadian, but everyone used the word Canadian. Um, and a lot of that had to do with both times. So a lot of them said, we've spent so much time in Canada, so it's natural that we feel this attachment. And then many of them expressed what they believed to be Canadian values. So they said, you know we believe in the values of Canada, which they sort of described as, you know democracy, freedom of speech, Um, A lot of them said, it's a land of opportunity. So, you know, if you work hard, you can achieve really good things, very tolerant of both our views and us as a community. Uh, But that was, of course, often challenged by, you know, racism. So many refugees talked about the racism they experienced in Canada. Um, The very interesting thing that I found was a lot of them talk about racism dissipating over time. So they said, you know, when we first right in the 70s 80s you could really feel it you could really see it Um, and then they say you know a little bit later on 90s 2000s when you start going to major public buildings like your malls or just start um your sporting events they're like we could see the diversity and so of course there was more quote unquote more racism in the past because there were less there was less diversity in Canada and so it dissipated over time but the and again, that, of course, gets challenged by the second generation. The last one that was interesting that came out as a theme was volunteerism. So everyone that I interviewed mentioned specifically that they volunteer um, in some way, shape, or form. So some of them volunteer in their local communities that are in Canada, be it um, church groups, their own religious organizations, or, you know, Easter Seals campaigns, the Rotary Club, all kinds of, you know, local organizations, one person had received a letter from the governor general for donating blood 40 times in their lifetime. So many of them emphasized that they wanted to give back to Canada because of what they had received. So this sense of gratitude was huge. Uh, It came through in almost every single interview. Um, And some of them have even started large charities. So some have started, there's the Uganda Clubfoot project out of BC, uh, where a Professor and doctor go to Uganda every summer with interns and conduct these surgeries free of charge because um, it's a it's a very quick surgery that can be performed right after birth um, to help with um, some deformities. So
1: gratitude is definitely a recurring theme with all the interviews I've done, and I wonder what happened to the trauma.
0: I think the the trauma was. A challenge. I think there's a few things. One is the, the separation from the expulsion to now has helped. So I think because there's been such a long period of time, it has helped heal some of those wounds. But I do genuinely believe they're still there. Um, so in a lot of the interviews, some people even mentioned things like uh, when I asked them about Canadian identity, they had no affiliation to Uganda. They said, why would I say I'm Ugandan when they kicked me out? the trauma was still very real. So a lot of the times when they talked about this, specifically that 90 day period um, was quite difficult because they were very quickly packing up whatever they can uh, to get out and fast. So it was, you know, especially if you were not in Kampala, if you were traveling, you would have to make this journey and there were roadblocks, you get stopped along the way and you wouldn't be able to go back and get something you forgot or go back and, you know, get other papers. It was, you know, take as, little and as much as you can, you know, as much of a contrast that was, and get to Kampala, get the visa, and then fly out. Um, so we think, yeah, we I had a few it, participants that were definitely visibly very emotional. We took breaks, uh, which was good, um, but I think that trauma is still a little bit there. Uh, and, and naturally, I think it's understandable.
1: Would you like the listener of this podcast to take away from your story
0: the the big thing is at least from the Canadian experience that this was a momentous occasion. It's still it's still viewed even today as the one of the most successful refugee resettlements that Canada has ever done. So even when Canada was looking at helping the Syrians come in, they used this example. They said, you know, hopefully they can be you know as well integrated and as well settled as the Ukrainian Asians. So this was really the Hallmark uh, from a Canadian perspective of a successful immigration program. For me, it's always about accentuating the humanity of refugees. For so long, especially in the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen a ton of anti migrant, ton of anti refugee rhetoric that really ignores the fact that ultimately there are. They're humans, just like all of us, just like citizens and non-citizens are still humans. And this challenge becomes so difficult because we start having this vilification of migrants as bogus refugee claimants, terrorists, drains on our social system, queue jumpers, which is all quite frankly, populist rhetoric. Really accentuating this humanity and understanding that refugees have so much to give back to their communities. like. Every community has done this. These refugee communities all around the world. You know, even when, if we take Canada as an example, there were these huge fires that took place forest fires in Fort McMurray, this area I think north of Edmonton. Um, and some of the first responders to help offer, you know, first aid equipment to help volunteer were Syrian refugees that had come less than a year before. Um, so it's really beautiful to see that. Um, and a lot of them have this again, like we talked about. That sense of gratitude is huge, um, and many of them argue that because we've legitimately received a second lease on life, we've been given a second chance. We we would love to just give back uh, to humanity as much as possible. Yeah, just the big one for me is is really hammering home that message of you know refugee resettlement in in the current context. You know, twenty first century is is huge, and I think we have to. We have to balance it. It's very tough. Um, So, of course, I'm incredibly biased towards, you know, helping refugee communities. It's what I do for a living. But I think the challenge is finding the balance between opportunism and humanitarianism.
1: personal story about the expulsion, I would love to hear from you, especially if you ended up in Scandinavia, Australia, New Zealand, or even South America. The email address is expulsion50 at gmail.com or on Twitter at expulsion50. Till next time, keep well and keep safe.